Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. we got a return guest today. Hello, Johnny Owens. Hello, nice to see you. I'll Hello. see you or hear you. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. No, we, we, we last spoke to you when you were writing and starring in your film Svengali. Now you've come back with, what's the title of this film? It's called I Believe in Miracles, the remarkable story of Brian Clef's European Cup winning team. Now, that's not a, a dramatic film, is it? It's a, it's a documentary rather than a fictional thing. Although, it is. Although to, although, to stand back from the story, you'd think it was fiction. That's it. It's more, it's more sort of uh, fiction than fiction, really, in what happened, actually. So I thought that was a... It's arguably one of the greatest stories in the history, certainly of team sport, if not sport itself, as we all no, know. No, no. I, mean, I, I mean, I must admit, I, I was, I was, I've just been drafting my review, my review while I've been sort of waiting to speak to you. And mm. kind, of, that's kind of my opening line is that it's... It's a truly remarkable story that all football fans, and I thought, no, all fans of sport should watch this. It's kind of like, it's, it, it's got so much in it about what it is to be part of something that, A, nobody was expecting, and then a growing belief in your own ability through Christ, I mean, the, the strength in personality of one man. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, he kind of, I, I, was, I loved the documentary When We Were Kings, which was about Muhammad Ali. Yeah, and uh, I, I did think that that was really interesting, and that they picked a specific time in his life when he was at the height of his powers. You could argue when he was fighting Joe Frazier and mm. George Foreman, um, and I felt the same with Clever. I felt the man is such an iconic figure in British late twentieth century history, not just sport, but in history itself. That yeah, it's yeah. almost impossible, really, to do his life in one film. You know, you'd just be in an hour and a half. I, I mean, you've seen just what happened in five years, but I wanted to concentrate on the five years where he achieve this incredible story and what I wanted to do was I wanted to speak to the people that spent the most time with him in the words of his family the players spent more time with him than we did during that period because he lived at the ground and they were there all the time and I wanted to speak to him and I wanted to find out what it was that made him tick and turned them into you know from a mid-table second division side into the best team in in Europe if not the world. No, and I think I think that's the canny trick of what you've done with the documentary is that you've 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 telling us this is the story of Nottingham Forest but in actual fact, it's like you say, it's it's a it's a short chapter, but an amazing chapter that tells a bigger story of one man who, who, who involved himself in football. You know, the big thing is obviously for successful, but actually, 
it is you're, you're getting the sense of this man. Can I just as a bit of just for the listeners give a, give a bit of context as to what we're talking about if they're not football fans or or they're young. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Nottingham Forest when um, when for when when Brian Clough took over were mid table in the old second division, which is now the Championship as we call it. And in two and a half seasons, by 1977, he got promotion with them into the First Division, which is obviously now the Premier League. At first attempt of being in the Premier League, as it were, he won it. <laughs> which, which I mean, I think, I can't remember what you used to, to put it in perspective in the film, but to put it in perspective for those listening today, that would be like Watford or Bournemouth winning the league in 2016. Yep. Um, and then, the following year, First time Forrest had ever played in Europe, he goes and wins the European Cup and successfully defends it in 1980 as well. That is an, am- I mean, that is an amazing thing. I actually had forgotten, to be honest. I knew he'd won it, but I didn't actually, you know, you don't remember as a kid that they'd come from nowhere. You just, you remember him being, because I'm a Liverpool fan, you just remember him being your competition all of a sudden. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't know the rise was like it was. It was a, it's, it's a remarkable story, isn't it? You know, as, as you say, when you put it into the cold light of day, what he did, and especially it's another great modern sort of fact you can give people. The same team this year, at the same date as when Brian Clough walked into that into Nottingham Forest, were Huddersfield Town. So Josie Mourinho would have to go into Huddersfield Town. <laughs> He'd have to take them up, win the Premiership, first time of asking, then win two Champions Leagues, two League Cups, beers the nub. He'd have to keep five of the players that are already there and turn them into European Cup winners. That's what Brian Clough did. That, yeah, that, that was the other bit that kind of knocks it out of the park, really. The fact uh, that no. he, he, he took with him over that five-year period five players who were the core, and I'll give you the core of it. Um, yeah. So where, where, did you, where did you start a document? Knowing, knowing you decided to go, right, let's go for this like amazing chapter in the, of his life. Mm. And you said you wanted to speak to the players. I mean, as a filmmaker, how did you go about that then? What did you? How did you get all those people? Because at one end, you've got obviously Martin O'Neill, who's a very busy man. Yeah. You've got you've got ex footballers who you know they might be living their lives away from football these days. That's right. I mean, there were sixteen <laughs> players. What I had to do was I had to sort of think creatively about how many players I I included as talking heads because mm. if it gets too many, then you you know. So I, I thought sixteen was a good number. Uh, over an hour and a half to have and, and kind of intercut. And what I found was that uh, if I picked the team or the players that started in the 1978-1979 European Cup campaign, then mm. I was, you know, I had a base to sort of start with and a sort of a line in the sand. These are the players. But what I found was when I was interviewing them, it took me about 12 months altogether because, like you say, they're geographically dispersed as well. Some live in Spain, some live in the Middle East, and they live all over the country. Um, they all kind of recounted, all spoke brilliantly, as you know from the film, but they all recounted these stories, and you were able to cut it uh, in a way where you were able to almost tell a story using five or six different people or talking heads the same story and intercut so you almost get this um, feeling of it being like a 16 headed monster or beast mm. a team coming at you because they all knew each other so well and i thought that was a really important part to do where you know i know it's a bit arty but you know and, and senna started it and did it brilliantly but assemble edit films where basically for listeners the idea is if you don't have a voiceover narrative it's considered really arty because you've kind of made it from 
your sort of materials that you've got, but they just take longer. It's really easy just to put a voiceover going, well, here we are in Nottingham in 1975, and this is what happened. And then, you know, you go, but if you can do it without that and using other people's voices and bits of archive, then, you know, creatively people go, oh, well, I must have talked, you know, it's taken a bit more work. And it does. It takes about a year altogether because you're having to create the story by using other people's words and you've got to fit it to a narrative that tells a story but using their words. So it's, it's quite an interesting process and quite a, a, a what I would call an edit-heavy process compared to a drama. Basically, with a drama, you spend all your time and all your work's done shooting it out in the field and then you just put it together after like a, like a jigsaw. But with a documentary, it's the other way around. The interview's actually done very quickly, within an hour. Mm. But then you get the footage and you're building up this montage and that takes hours and hours in an edit suite. Well, I mean, and, 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 it's, and, and you're right, it does... Um... It, it does. It mixes the archive of the games and archives of obviously Brian Cluck, you know, he passed away a while ago now. Um, yeah. So you weren't going to get to speak to him. And I thought you, you're right. It does. It, it when you don't have an, a narrative or even you know words on the screen to explain to us what what we're doing. It it is all down to your you know you as the audience have to work a bit you know to watch it. And I thought I thought you started the start of it is amazing. You know, since the start of the job and everything, but you, you show something that just wouldn't happen today. I was trying to think what they could. I mean, just for the, just for the listener, you've got a, a piece of footage from uh, a football TV show from 1975. You've got Brian Clough opposite Brian Moore, who was an old pundit, and Don uh, Don Revy, who was the Leeds manager and was the England manager at the time. Which I was thinking would have been like the equivalent of Brendan Rodgers being on TV with Roy Hodgson. About with, 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 or with Jürgen Klopp now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing. And it just wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. And then at the mi- and, and within seconds, Brian Clough is taking Don Revy to task. And it was like, boom, we're in. And it was like, yeah. I've kind of forgotten what character, because obviously we, we saw the older end of Brian Clough. So you forget the kind of personality he was, because he was, you know, in the end, he was an old man, like everybody becomes. Yeah. But that, but that Brian Clough in 1975, Jeez, there was nothing stopping him, was there? No, that's it. I mean, shoot, it's in the confidence, self-confidence that could go through sheet metal, as they say. I mean, he was even predicting, I wanted to win the European Cup done. You know, mm. I was just in that, he's 74. He's saying, <laughs> I wanted to win, this is what I want to do next. Because I want to do something you haven't done. Because they're, they're bitter rivals. And there's an amazing backstory with them too. Like I'm saying, it's so complex. And it's yeah. so, such a, such a, you know, amazing amount of information. But they were born within two streets of each other in Middlesbrough. They should have been mates. They could have, you know, their paths could have crossed. They were about 10 years apart in age. But they were from exactly the same area of Middlesbrough. That's so they were amazing. both Borough boys. Amazing. And they were both the best managers in the country. And Clough had had a certain style or philosophy of playing football at Derby. Mm. Uh, and Revy did at Leeds. Both exceptionally... Uh, Effective, so they were the two best teams in the country with Liverpool, um, but they despised each other, and they despised each other on every level. And what had happened was Don Revy had left an extraordinarily successful Leeds United and gone to become the England manager, and Clough had taken over. But the problem was that Clough had spent the last four years castigating Leeds, the players and the style and the way they play, in the, in the press, and then walked in there to try and manage a club. Well, he couldn't. There was mutiny. So he left after 44 days. And at that moment... That's what I try to put across. You know, I know Josie Mourinho is the man most, you know, attributed to being the most, the most like Brian Clough. But Brian Clough at that moment had left Derby because he'd argued with the chairman. He'd walked out on Brighton, 
Now, he'd left Leeds after just 44 days. He was considered, you couldn't work with him. He was considered unmanageable himself. So he was utterly toxic. And the only team that would take um, a chance on him was a run-down second division club, Nottingham Forest. But here's the, here's the nub again. Nottingham Forest had a committee, not a chairman, you see. Very interesting. It was almost sort of like 19th century Corinthian in spirit, right? So they didn't have a powerful figure at Nottingham Forest. They basically had 200 men that paid a pound a year and all voted. So they get Clough in and there's, no, there's nobody in for him to battle. There's nobody in for him to battle. He just basically goes, right, I'll come in, but I do what I want. And they obviously go, okay, just crack on, pal. And he wins everything. <laughs> And he wins everything. So that's the point, is that it was almost a perfect storm happened as well, in the sense that he went, ironically, to the right club. You know, as a division down, you know, not run by anybody or any senior figure. He went to the right club, you know. So there was kind of like a lot of stars aligned, really, for it to all happen. Peter Taylor, for argument's sake, is great sort of partner, had stayed at Brighton and nearly took them up. They came fourth that year that Clough first went to, to Forest. And Clough rang him and said, look... Do you want to come back to the derby? Or, you know, that's where he lived, which is really near Nottingham. I know you miss home. And Taylor came back. Now, if he'd have taken Brighton up, he would have stayed, obviously, because he'd taken them up. So that happened as well. So there was so many things that in life you go, God, just that little tiny degree of difference would have made all the difference. But it all aligned perfectly for five years. And like you said, what they got there, they got a man at the absolute peak of his powers, absolutely in his prime, untouchable, unplayable, you know, sort of even Liverpool, you know, just couldn't get near Forest for about two or three years. Paisley himself said they were the most difficult side we ever played in that period, whether at home or in Europe. You know, it was just, they had somebody. And after 1980, it is a different story, an almost quite tragic story, really, of what happened where he almost couldn't cope with the success. It's, it's awfully sad when you, when you after that, because I wanted the film to be joyous, because I wanted Clough to be remembered for these amazing five years, as mm. well as everything else. But what you find after, Stuart, is that he, he, it's heartbreaking. He couldn't cope with it. He became an alcoholic, and his family talk about it quite openly, that his brain almost fried, if you know what I mean, with the pressure of what he'd created. And a lot of people don't realise this, and it quite shocks them. Brian Clough had retired at the same age that man. Sir Alex Ferguson had started winning his first premierships. So when Ferguson was starting on his rise of winning those 10 titles, yeah. Clough was done. Clough was fried out. He was finished. Yeah, people forget he won the title with Derby in his 30s. They forget this. So he, yeah. he, he almost, he was like a shooting star. He was a bit like, you know, something, it was, but that's why I chose disco music. He was a bit like something that came in, a, in, a, in an amazing frazzle and a moment, in a glitter ball and a sh you know, all these shining lights, and then was gone, really, in the sense of they won some League Cups, Forrest, but they were never the, the same side that they were during that period, and, and, and Forrest have gone back, as Martin O'Neill interestingly said to me, to be in what they were before he came, a mid-table second division club, so it was his force of personality that had turned this club into the best club in, in Europe, amazing. But that, but that force of personality isn't to say that the players you speak to aren't also their own strong personalities their own way they just they just had and you can still see it to this it, I, you know if you resurrected him tomorrow and brought him in a room with them you they would be reverent they'd be reverent with him wouldn't they i mean it was amazing that the the amount of respect they had for him they loved him it's as simple as that you know even mm. if even if some of them felt that he was harder on them than others and he, and he had favorites like john robertson and you know kenny burns and but they all loved him i mean larry lloyd who was him and Larry, as they say to each other, were the, probably the most antagonistic. You would call Larry the big head and all that. But like Larry said, you know, I would I would walk the Sahara Desert for him. Mm. And there's a really interesting 
thing that happened. I was in. I used to invite the players into the edit suite. A lot of them because they were really interested in the film making process. And yeah. Larry was sat there one day in the dark, and Larry was one of the players. He lived in Spain, would come over, and he'd really enjoy watching the process because it's quite boring actually when people outside come in because after about half an hour, an hour, when doing the same thing, they kind of go, "Oh, is this it? Is this what you do?" And they kind of go, "Yeah, you know." And uh, there's no glamour to it at all. Yeah, yeah. And Larry, Larry was sat there in the dark, and I'd almost forgotten about him really, and because um, he just he was very happy doing that, and. Uh, uh, it's Tottenham are playing uh, Forest, the first game of the way game of the season for Forest, and Larry Lloyd led them out, and he he spoke in the darkness. He went, "Oh, look at that!" He said, "The gaffer let me let me run the team out. I've forgotten about that." He said, "He must have liked me a bit, boys, to let me do that." And I thought, "Wow!" Even from his grave, he still wants and you know uh, wants Brian Clough's approval, his affection. You know, oh. even now we went. Oh look, you must have liked me. We went, of course he liked you. He loved you. This is what he did. You know, he got the best of the players with his man management style. But you were a lad that was very confident and maybe needed calming down a bit. Whereas other lads, you know, who were you know less confident needed to bring it up. So, like you're saying, his man management style was perfect. And of course, with age and maturity now, they've all gone. He was amazing. It was incredible. I mean, like John McGovern says, people say to me, what was it like to work for him? And he goes, just go and look at my house. I got two Champions League medals sitting there. That's what it was like <laughs> working for him. And it's a brilliant response because you kind of go, I wanted to explore two myths, really. Two things really interested me um, when I met the players. One was that they all said that they'd never seen him drunk at that time. Uh, Frank Clark said a brilliant thing to me. He said to me, like the pint, like a sword at that time, but he said, never seen him drunk. He said, you can't win European Cups drunk. So that's a nonsense. Mm. So I was, I was really interested in that. And the second one was all of them said, and John Robertson said something interesting. He said, this idea that he was a tyrant. He said, you can't do anything afraid. You can't do anything in life if you're afraid. You can't certainly go to a football pitch and express yourself afraid. He said, it was the opposite with Clough. I was told that I was brilliant at what I did for the first time in my life. I had a fantastic left foot. I, you know, I could, I could drill in a penalty. I could put a ball on a sixpence. And he told me that I was the best in the business doing this. So he said, I couldn't wait to play football for Brian Clough. I couldn't wait to get on the pitch. I couldn't wait to have the ball. Because every time I look over, I'd go, well done, John. So this idea that he was some kind of castigating sort of guy is, is, was, again, a little bit of a myth, really, that had to be exploded. What he did was, and you've seen it, he created an environment where players could express themselves and have a good time. He was a good laugh. They all could, he was funny. Him and Peter Taylor were really funny together. That's the other thing. They were like a double act, like Morecambe and Wise, that they, a lot of the players say. They said, just get them together and just make them laugh. So it was all about the films, all about them. Listen, you don't win everything without having a t- good team spirit. And there's that great line in the film at Martin O'Neill. He said, look, I know people always go on about team spirit and nobody's probably more qualified than him to talk about management now with Martin O'Neill. But he goes, I know people are always going on about management and, and if you win a few games, the team spirit's good. But he said, we won't win in just a few games. We were winning loads of games and loads of trophies. And he was kind of like underplaying it because they went 42 games unbeaten. They no, set that yeah, record. Yeah, I was listening to the stats and you were I like... Know. You're just a bit like, what? I didn't even do that. I've heard of the Arsenal Invinci- Invincibles, but I've never heard of this. And that's why it's lovely this tag, the Miracle Men, has taken off. Because you're a bit like, they all say in a very dry way, they go, yeah, Arsenal are a very good side. But they never won the European Cup. They've always got that to say, you know. And you, always go, <laughs> and you go, Manchester United were a great team in the late 90s in Fergie. And they go, yeah, but they never won it back-to-back like we did. <laughs> so they've always got like a well, comeback. Well, I mean, the thing is watching it, I don't, and you don't want to get too dewy-eyed about, about the past, but you can't help but see that... And I think I think Cluffy says it at one point where he says football is our sport. Yes, and that's right. And the film is great line there. And I think I think you've captured that a lot in this film because I don't think it's our sport anymore. Mm. 
You know, there's no there's no Heineken or Coca-Cola pushing anyone out of the way. This is it's all about the team and what they're doing. And yeah. that's all you see. That's all I you mean, experience. Even even um, you know, the, the I wanted to capture trying to capture so many things and there was there was so much thought went into it, but a time in the seventies of, of still Borrell and, you know, pies and you know, a whiff of hooliganism in the air. I wanted to mm. capture all that. But also a time when it was changing sleeker kits, as you notice, Adidas kits, like oh, the beautiful, the beautiful, beautiful lighter boots. So you can see that football's changing; it's starting to sort of, you know, become what you would call more modern, I suppose, and what we call the modern game. But I did want to capture the fact that you know Gary Newbond, a great journalist, I think I explained to younger viewers, he was he was basically like a football journalist at the time, a bit like uh, you'd say somebody on Sky, you know, like a, you know, like a Jim White. But he would turn up. And asked the most outrageous questions. I mean, the access they had was hilarious. I mean, he'd literally say to Clough, "Well, you know, you've had a bit of a dodgy start of the season, you know, this year, and you know, but how are you hoping to sort of improve after winning the title last year?" That was his questioning. <laughs> he said, "He said to Trevor Francis, he said, well, you know, you want to leave Birmingham, don't you?'" And he goes, "Well, I want to, don't want to say that, Gary. You know, I don't want to say." It. He said, oh, "Yeah, you do. You know, you're in a poor Birmingham team. Be honest, you want to leave?" I was a bit like, "Can you imagine the layers of PR you have now in football? Somebody having that kind of access and being able to say that to the most expensive." footballer in the world like Ronaldo or Messi or being able to say to the like you said the best two managers can you come on a TV show and debate each other could you say to Jose Mourinho <laughs> and Arsene Wenger could you sit on a programme with me and just have a chat about why you dislike each other so much can you imagine that but that's what happened and that's what I think you know, I'm one of those people, I'm, I'm not against modern football in any way. I think mm. football has improved in so many ways. You know, we all know that what football was like in certain ways, you know, the hooliganism and all that. I'm not trying to, you know, sort of hang for some amazing past. But you're absolutely right. We have lost something on the way. Of that, there is no doubt whatsoever. We have lost the fact that more often than not, the team on our pitch were us in shirts. They were always going to give us the best. The pitches mm. are a bit mucky. But you know what? When I went to watch Cardiff City, I knew I was going to watch 11 blokes, not of the best ability, but they were going to give it their best shot. Otherwise, we wouldn't we wouldn't have had it. And we didn't mind losing. And there's a great line from Ian Bowie in the film. He said, he didn't mind you missing. He didn't mind you hitting, you know, not hitting the target or miscontrolling the ball. He could, he could take all that, but he just would not have you not giving you a lot. And in the modern game, as you said, when you see multi-millionaire footballers, going on strike, you know, and, and turning up at, at other clubs because they want to leave. And you, that's what infuriates fans, and, and I can understand. And that's the difference between them players and the, and the modern player. Those players were just happy to play football and would have done it for nothing. And you could tell that in the film. No, no, totally, yeah. You can you can see it in the, in the way that they they talk about it and they remember it. And I think I think also as well, they, they, they played football in a period, you know, in, in kind of modern footballers' defence. They played football in a period when it wasn't 24-7 media. So, That's right. So even you coming along, putting a camera in front of him, would still be novel for them. Whereas I'm sure Ryan Sterling has already seen enough cameras to last him a lifetime. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think what's really interesting about it is when you were going back through the footage, there was the football would be uh, tend to be in a half an hour segments, which was match of the day and big match. Um, um, and Forest were featured quite a lot. I mean, there is a lot of footage of Forest there because they were a team on the rise and because of Brian Clough was so telegenic, as they say. But what I was amazed at was because there was only three channels, the viewing figures. I mean, like you know, there's there's big fuss the other day because um, the Bake Off had 14 million and everyone wow. I was like, there was like 24 million people watched the European Cup final then. I was like, that's half the population of the country. 
I mean, Nottingham took 30,000 people to Munich. That's one-tenth of the population of Nottingham went to Munich. And I, I, and I don't know how they did it, because this is pre-internet. You know, you couldn't walk into a travel agent and go, oh, you know, we're all off to Munich, get us an aeroplane. It just didn't happen then. So there's all these stories about buses and trains and car journeys and bikes, literally, and hitchhiking. But, they, you know, they took one in ten people in Nottingham got to Munich and watched the game. So, because football wasn't on television, like you said, in, in, in the 24-hour way it is now, but it was still huge. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. So even now, with football... I've had two ecstatic reviews in the Times from Football Writers. I mean, ecstatic reviews. The best film about football ever made. I mean, mm. you know, you, you couldn't ask for any better. This football is a film is a joy to watch. The films, the Times critic writer gave me two stars and murdered me. I mean, what he said was, he went, oh, this is for football fans only. It's disgraceful. When he talks about Germany, it cuts to Nazis and blah, blah, blah. And um, he's basically talking about somebody that has no identity with the game whatsoever. Completely fine, I understand that. But what he has to understand is, it was a working class game and still is. So football fans still sing The Great Escape. Brian Clough, when he was talking to them about Cologne, would still go, don't forget, this is a lot that bombed your grannies. You know, it was those, that humour and that working class way of dealing things was there in the team. And I wanted to get in the film. I wanted people to understand what the social history of, of football is and how working class it is. And I, I, I don't care how much they try to pretend that, you know, it's, it's middle class now and prawn sandwiches. Of course, there is a gentrification that's happened in some parts. But it's still a very sort of somewhere we can go on our on the Saturday. It's our opera where we can go and we can bellow at a team. Like you're saying, you know, you're a Liverpool fan. You can bellow at a side or you can get behind them and we can express ourselves in a certain way. And I wanted to do that in this film. I wanted to tap in and show people that our game and the reason why it's the greatest game in the world and the most popular sport in the world is because it's still something that we can all connect to on a very basic level as a tribe. It's all about identity. It's about that team. It's about you supporting a team and togetherness amongst you as fans against them lots over there who also feel together and, and just getting it on against each other. And I wanted to get that in the film. No, I mean, it's funny because it's funny I've had these conversations recently with friends of mine where we talked about how you feel like it's almost like the fun has been taken out of football because it's been made to look more important than it is because of the stakes in terms of the people that own the rights to it. Yeah. You know, if you if you go watch Cardiff and they lose, you're disappointed, aren't you? You know, there's, yes. there's, there's no there's no two ways around it. But it but you when you by the time you get to your car or the pub to your mates, you're already talking about a new album or whatever it might be. Yeah. You're not you're not dissect you never you're not dissecting it like they do in the that like they've done in the media now, where you, you 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 kind of you're looking for the right and the wrong reason why things don't happen or do happen. Yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing this conversation. You should speak to the players because they go on about it all the time. John Robertson's a great one. He said, "Match the day drives me mad when they analyse the goals after the after the match." He said, "Like Clough used to talk about it. You know, he said you can't." He said. You, Referees love Brian Clough and they love refereeing his sides because Brian Clough was a big one for going, you can't blame the referee for split-second decision. He's just a human being. He'll do his best. But once the decision's been made, he said this great line, I have never seen 
a referee change their mind on a penalty or a free kick before ever in the history of football. There's never been a referee gone, ah, actually, yeah, you're all right now, all your boys protesting. I'm going to change my mind. I'm not going to give a penalty. Never happened. But players will still protest. But with Clough, what he would say to his players, he's, he'd go, once the decision's been made, that's it. I don't want you protesting. There's no point. And he had this great debate. It's on YouTube with John Watson. I was talking about it then. It was the first time that he was sort of saying about it. And he was saying, talking about over-analysis. And he said, over-analysis. And he said, and you stop enjoying the game. And then John Robertson said something really interesting to me. He says, when they point out mistakes, the defender here should have gone into this space and covered you. And he said, Martin Keown, who was like a caveman centre-half talking about triangles, you know, pretty triangles, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, he said, <laughs> and he said, you know, he's saying, he's thinking as if he's, as if he's playing for Barcelona or something. And then he's going, he said, if there's no mistakes made in football, there would be no goals. There would be no drama. And it wouldn't be the great sport that it is. So there has to be mistakes. That just has to happen for they to create the opening for the goal. So when Match of the Day or Sky spent an hour, two hours going, oh, this is the reason why this happened. It's because he didn't do that and he didn't there. They forget about the million variables that can happen in a game that makes it so brilliant, that makes football the best team, in the best sport in the world, where the most upsets can happen because those million variables can move a different way. But when you overanalyze it, like you said, you take the fun out of it, you take the joy. Listen, it's not, if, a fall, if a left back falls on his ass, right, and the, and the winger goes round him, there's a good chance he's going to get in and score. But you can't, you know, you can't cover that. You can't, you can't, as Brendan Rodgers, bless him, who was just left Liverpool, there's great stories about him. He'd be up three o'clock in the morning, analyzing, trying to work out, trying to work out desperately how his side could, could work. Three there, four there, thing. dietitians, sports analysts, data, blah, blah, blah. Brian Clough would make a shape of his finger, an OK sign, and that was enough. That was enough for John Robertson to understand. Okay, I've just got, I've just put a good cross in. I've got to do that again. You know what I mean? So it's a bit like the simplicity of what Clough achieved was something that he tapped into. That I think is the secret. Often, whether it be in filmmaking, art, well, like sometimes the more you let it go and the more you simplify it, the better it can be. Well, no, I mean, I mean, you know. People for, for the last 15 years of Ferguson's reign, he didn't even train with the players, did he? No. When he walked in the dressing room and said, I want you to do this, do that, everyone looked all right, he's telling me what to do. And I think there is a lot to be said about the fear of doing it. There's some great instance in your documentary where somebody scores a goal and they're relieved they scored a goal because they'll get bollocked for being in the penalty area. <laughs> John McGovern. Yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> amazing. He has a quick look at the bench. Yeah. He's going to get a rollick for being that far forward. Him and the, uh, is it, is it, was it, what's the, the, the ex-City player as well, the fullback? Ah, uh, Colin Barrett. Colin Legend. Barrett, yeah. Yeah. They, they, they're two examples where it's like, they obviously just decided to do something and then partway through their brain's going, I'm not meant to be here. Yeah. <laughs> Where's he going? Get him back. What is that lunatic doing? They were shouting from the bench. If he scores, they go, oh, what a goal. <laughs> and again, that backs up the thing, doesn't it? About how, you know, it, it, the random, there's some random things that happen in football that make it so magical. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, like saying, and then uh, Martin O'Neill saying that Peter Taylor had the goal after the goal. We were encouraging them to go forward to the last <laughs> minute. <laughs> so, you know, just brilliant stories where you go, you can really see they were having the time of their lives, you know, at that time. And, you know, these are 16 men. I mean, giant squads now, but these were 16 men. Just, I mean, again, one of the Gary Burtle said to me, we did literally go from playing York or Grimsby to go into Barcelona and the new camp. We literally did go from playing in Scunthorpe to going and playing in the Burnham on the European Cup final in three or four years. He said, that did happen. Talking to Forest fans about this, and that some say that, you know, is it a millstone round our neck? And I'm just going, nah, relax. You've done it. You know, it's a bit like I said to Liverpool fans. You've been to the top of the mountain now. It's okay now. 
you can just go with it. You know, it's, your club is a brilliant, historic, important football club. That's just a fact. Nobody can take that away from you ever again. You know, you've done it. My grandfather used to say a great thing to me, which I didn't understand as a kid. And as I got older, he said, you can't beat history, son. You can't beat history. And he's right. You know, he's, you know, with the brands are obsessed and, you know, everything in life, you know, once something's got a bit of history and a bit of heritage, it's so important, becomes so much more important. And I got, I get what he means now. And, and, and Liverpool and, and Nottingham Forest in them time were the two best teams, not just in Britain, but in Europe. They were mm. the two best teams in Europe were literally fighting it out. In a certain, in, in the middle of the British Isles, you know, across from the Mersey to Trent, they were the two best teams. So when Europe's eyes were on those two sides, millions of viewers from across Europe were looking at Nottingham Forest and Liverpool. And if you go anywhere in the world even now and go, I'm from Nottingham, as my missus says, people instantly go, Brian Clough and Robin Hood. <laughs> that's yeah, that's yeah, what they yeah. know, you know. And if you go anywhere in the world and you say you're from Liverpool, they go, Liverpool Football Club and the Beatles. That just happens, you know. You, you, you can't take that away, you know. That great line in Stuart Marconi's book about pop music is like, because of the Beatles, you start that chat that Liverpool 4, the rest of the world nil. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit like, once you've got the Beatles, it's really hard to sort of come back and go, oh yeah, we had this and we had this starting there. So it's a bit like with Forest fans, I always say to them, you've got that history, you've got that heritage. Uh, it's, you know, what happens now is kind of like, it doesn't really matter in a lot of respects. I, I would like you to become successful again because, you know, you've had to come attached to the club I'm a Cardiff City fan but I, I wish you I hope, I hope you the best but you know what if you could ask any football fan what five years of what club would you want to happen to your club you'd go 1975 1980 to Nottingham Forest to happen to my club could that happen could we have somebody like Brian Clough come in can you imagine and I don't think there are many teams in football that are loved by their fans like the Nottingham Forest team of 1975 to 1980 are loved like Nottingham Forest because even with Liverpool, there's been great teams since. There's been, the, remember the John Barnes team in the late 80s? Mm. was a great side. So there's been lots of great teams for Liverpool. There's been lots of great Celtic teams, Man United teams. But with Forest, there's only been one great team, really. And that mm. was that side. So they've kind of like got a very unique relationship with the fans and the city that, you know, is, is, is quite beautiful, actually. What was, um, what you, 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 you touched on why you chose the music because you, you were saying you wanted. You, you wanted a film that was very up film because it is it's the rise, not the rise and fall. That's of, right of Brian Clough and Forrest. So, what where, where did when when did the idea for the music? So obviously the title track. Is... Well, yeah, I mean, it, we started talking about it being a miracle, what they achieved, a sporting miracle, and obviously I'm a, a massive muso, as I suppose they could mm. call me. I'm a music fanatic, mm. um, and I had a I had a, a track called Ray Grooves which uh, has, a, has, a, has a very famous song on it called I Believe in Miracles by the Jackson Sisters. And there's a great arg argument amongst musical historians, especially popular musical historians, that the first disco song, some people argue, is that. Other people argue is Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, which is a song called The Love I Lost. It's, they're considered to be the two first ever disco songs. Uh, lush production, strings, a hi-hat, high energy. Um, and I top and tail the film with them both. Uh, because what I discovered was... Disco is being completely reappraised now. Uh, there was a great documentary on BBC Four the other night about how important disco was. It started club culture, it started mm. sort of dance music, all these kind of things. A bit like punk was revolutionary, but at the time it was dismissed as a bit sort of fluffy. And, and I think this team is a bit like that in that it's been lost a little bit in history. The great Nottingham Forest team of the of the seventies. I mean, you're a Liverpool fan and you know this. You always see pictures of the cop in the seventies, and you always see pictures of Shankly, and you always see pictures of Liverpool City Centre mobbed mm. out. When people go and watch this film, the first thing they all say to me, God, I never realised that happened in Nottingham. I mean, remember the bit in the way they're all packed in the city centre and half a yeah. million people? People go, I never knew that happened. And you kind of go, it's been a little bit wiped from history because probably Nottingham Forest are not a top club anymore. And as you say, 
the Premier League is everything. So because they're not a Premier League club anymore, you don't get the sort of same attention, as you said, by the press. And because that's happened, a little bit of history has been lost, really, in the sort of maelstrom of what's happened in football since. So when you show those shots, people genuinely are shocked and love them and go, I never actually realised it was that big. It was a bit like you said, I never realised the rise was that quick. Mm. I never realised, you know, they beat that many teams. I never realised the run was that long. So all these things happen where you go, I never, and you know, and I was able to find all this great footage, a lot of it in tins in Lincoln with the old, what they call ATV, which was in the ITV region of the, of the, of the central sort of con- part of the country, was in tins in Lincoln right. in, an, in an archive. And I was finding stuff and I was going, well, what's in that? And I was finding shots and footage of Clough talking and, you know, stuff that hasn't been seen for 35 years. I was thinking then, oh, I've got, I've got gold here. I've got Brian Clough, t- I've got Brian Clough going through his mail, being filmed and him going, there's six letters there from MPs writing to me. They all want something. I don't want to give anything. They all want something. And I'm thinking, they're the, that's the highest power in the land, Westminster, basically. The seat of, you know, our government are right into this one man asking him things. You know, what do they want? You know, how important is he at this point? And I'm trying to sort of justify how big a figure Brian Clough looms at that point in 1970s. You know, and, and it's like Martin O'Neill. He was a major celebrity. I mean, he was A-list. He was on Parkinson nearly every day. Well, I was going to say, that was the other part that, that, that was really revelatory because, you know, I've grown up knowing that he was, he was, you know, old big head and everything, but I'd, I'd, I'd forgotten that he was like Saturday night TV viewing. It was like it's uh, it's hard to imagine, and it's not like that was normal because you know Bob Paisley wasn't going on the TV, was he? No, it was, no, it, it was unique to to, to Cluffy, wasn't it? And, and he, he was amazingly telegenic. I mean, he was extraordinarily char- charismatic, as you can see. But he would do things that professional. Um, people would do behind the camera he does he like he would wink on the barrel of a lens to, to the audience out there to the to the you know the seven million people watching you know he'd wink as you know that's the kind of thing that like seasoned actors can do you know and and he would i was watching sort of rolls of tape where it's almost off what he's doing he's going now oh, there's your cut point you know he's using technical terms to say well you know <laughs> that's where you'll cut to the editor so he knows the, he knows the craft so well and he's so clever with using it and like you said brilliant brilliant um uh, sound bites and you know but he, he could pontificate superbly on the you know the, 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 the politics of the day i mean he had an unapologetic working class accent i mean he's only knew that often now on, on television but this booming northeast voice that was very happy to give you an opinion on everything john robinson said the other day i've never known anybody that could argue with you for half an hour on a subject he knew nothing about but he would win he said that was him. He said he had this extraordinary way about him where there was not one single thing that he would not go, I'll have a go at that. I'll have a go. And this is, this is the point of the film. The point of the film is that it's him at the peak of his powers. It's, this is him when he is absolutely without peer. This is him when he's gone past every team in Europe and he's just firing on all cylinders. So in every interview he's, he's engaging. There's a great story in it where uh, Trevor East, who's, uh, who's an old uh, sort of presenter, producer that people would know from the 70s. And yeah. he had an idea where he said, what I'll do is I'll get Gary Newbond on a Friday night for half an hour with Brian Clough and we'll just get him to talk. He said it'd be like throwing a, a, a baby to the lions. He said it'd be hilarious. So he would get Gary Newbond in and he said, I'd put Clough with him and they would chat. And he said, this is the gospel truth. He said, it started on ATV, which is the central. And he said, by the end, it was getting 10, 15 million viewers because the rest of the ITV regions all wanted it because it was such compulsive viewing. And it was just Gary Newborn and Brian Clough talking, arguing, basically, about everything, you know, everything was happening but I th- that but day. But I think, I think for, all, for all that he's kind of billed as being this loudmouth, actually, 
going off the clips that I was able to see in your film, is actually, he was very observant and very nuanced about what everybody wanted versus what he needed to make his team successful. And obviously that included making the people of Nottingham feel like they were part of it. You know, there was a very, it was, you know, the sim- the obvious comparison is Bill Shankly, you know, it's like yeah. he, he understood the symbiotic nature of what he was doing. Yeah. But he played the media like a fiddle and whenever they stepped out of line, he could just subtly tell them off without losing his rag. It was, it's really powerful stuff when you see it happen. And it's like, this is before the 24-7 media. He was, he seemed to be, like you say, he, he had all that technical knowledge and he was aware of it, but actually... What he was saying, he was very self-aware of what he was doing. Absolutely. I mean, it comes up, Shankly was his great friend, of course, was was the same. And it comes back to what I was saying earlier on about understanding kind of the connection with football to, to working class culture, which is, you know, it's 100 years old now. They understood the power of, of the people that would follow them literally blindly like an army. I mean, the cop, for argument's sake, would... I mean, a relationship with Clef, uh, with Shankly, even to this day, where, you know, they wave banners with Shankly and Paisley's mm. faces on them. So, you know, he... This, his wife, Shankly's wife, gave a fantastic statement where she went, uh, the, he made the people happy. What a wonderful line. That's what she said. And she got it all down to one line. He made the people happy. And Clough had that very similar thing in Nottingham where I don't think uh, Shankly probably comes close. Fergie never had this, and I would argue with any Man United fan, but Busby possibly did, but I mm. don't think a manager has ever been loved by a set of football fans quite like Brian Clough was by Nottingham Forest fans at that time. I mean, they adored him, not only because he was winning everything, but, you know, I mean, to tell the Trent end, you know, off for swearing, the Trent end, you know, <laughs> tough, tough East Midlands industrial city, and he's going, cut your language out, boys. And he swore himself, which is hilarious. So, you know, you could, you know, you could air for the best of them. But he's telling them to stop swearing. And the reason why they do it is because they sing a song called He's You, He's There, He's Every Effing Way, John O'Hare. That's mm. the song. Mm. And, he, this, and he references this song. The following Saturday, packed Trent end, 15,000 working-class men, boys, standing in the end, and they actually sing, it's a true story, he's here, he's there, we're not allowed to swear, John O'Hare, John O'Hare, <laughs> that's what they sing. So they've adapted the song for Brian Clark within the week and taken out the F word, which is just beautiful. So, you know, there was things like that, there's that relationship with the supporters that, you know, is utterly unique to him, that he understood and they understood and allowed them to become a part of the success as much as, you know, as, as, as he was, really. Indeed, indeed. Now, I'm sure people listening can, can sense certainly my enthusiasm for this film. It's a brilliant, brilliant documentary. So it's worth probably saying at this point how people can... When, when, when's it released and how can people see it? It's out on Tuesday. Tuesday uh, the what? What date's that? Thir- 13th of October. I'm right. sorry, this is really funny. Vicky McClure has just given me some cheese on toast and handed it to me in the bed. And um, I'm just swallowing it. <laughs> just say hello, Vicky. It's a bit next hello. podcast. Hello, Vicky. <laughs> um, so it's out on national release on Tuesday, the 13th of October. Okay. All across the UK. If you go on IBelieveInMiraclesFilm.com and mm-hmm. type in your location... It'll tell you your local cinema, and it's got a great release. It's right across the country. I've managed to persuade some big chains like Showcase and View that people will go and watch it, bless them. Um, so I hope you do, and I hope people will go and see it, because it's what it does. It just helps people that make British films, really. Like me, that's what it does. And because they just want to put on big Hollywood blockbusters, which I can totally understand. But if they can put on little films like this and little documentaries about British 
times in British history, then it helps me no end. And we've had really good pre-sales, but if I have a good momentum going behind me, then that'll be fantastic. And then I, what happens then is, it's very simple to do it, I get to make another film then. <laughs> no, 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 that's the, that's, the, that's the circle of life, isn't it, when you're making movies? <laughs> no, and I'll tell, tell you, this is an odd, an odd, an odd thing that crossed my mind, and, and this isn't about all about your demographic, but I was, watching that, I was watching your film, and A, I could imagine sitting down with my dad and his mates, yeah. And then, and then two, I thought, I need to tell my dad and his mates that they should go and see this because they'll really enjoy, you know, they will really enjoy it, you know. They yeah. will see the football that they grew up watching, you know. And, yeah. And I think that's the thing that I think you tap into. That Yeah, and I want youngsters to learn then as well what it was of like. Of course, you know, yeah. What, what you want youngsters to go, God, you know, he was like Josie Mourinho, more than Josie Mourinho back in, you know, in the 70s. The football didn't start in 1992, you know, when, when Sky bought football out it didn't start you know that 90 world cup when gaza cried there was football a long time before that with great players great characters and, and it's worth you know it's worth telling the stories of that because you can't beat history as the saying goes my two my two my i guess my, my three favorite bits in the film were and, I, and it's a story i already knew um but it's the where's john robertson and then they look to the toilet and this cigarette smoke coming out of the toilet. <laughs> yeah. And they just say, don't worry about him. He'll know what to do when he gets on the pitch. And yeah. I just thought that. And there's a team on its way to winning a European Cup. And the rest of the team are being told, let, let your left winger have a cigarette. <laughs> uh, that is genius. Um, considering, you know, obviously, the way that Jack Wilshire is being treated now. In terms of, it's, like he's, it's like he's committed murder being seen having a cigarette. And there's a scene where they're saying every half time John Robertson's having a puff. But then the other, the two, and the two very, the, the two versions of the same thing. There is the, the, when they walked out on the, is it the 78 League Cup final against Liverpool? That's right, yeah. Where he stops the team oh, during the parade and turns to the fans. I now, know. It's weird, it's, it's coincidental that I'm seeing it at this time because Liverpool fans are being shown video footage of what Klopp was doing with the Dortmund fans. Yeah. And it's exactly the same. I know. But, but you're going, we're being told now that Klopp is this brilliant thing because he does that. He's saying, look at Klopp there. This is Wembley. Massive occasion. He stops his team on the way to the pitch to wave at the Forest fans. It's and astonishing. Then, and then the other, the flip side of that was where he let Peter Taylor walk out with the team at an Under Cup final. But the, the interview basically still comes back to Clough. It's like, <laughs> that's taking the, the piss out of Peter Taylor. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I, I, like I said, there's everything in the film where you would just go, that's all been done before. So it's brilliant you're saying that, like Jack Wilshire now and, you know, sort of Klopp with the fans. Everything is, in football has been done, you know what I mean? And it's like anything in life where you can sort of self-reference and go, that was done then and that was the same as now. You know, this generation is always going to go, oh, this older generation doesn't understand me and an older generation is always going to go, they're a bunch of hooligans, the ones, there's no respect anymore. That's always going to happen in, in, in human history. We're going to repeat everything. And what I wanted to do with this film is I wanted to say, like you're saying, this happened then, you know, people, you know, a quarter of a million people across, you know, three countries or whatever, watched this match, you know, there was huge viewing figures for this, you know, people would travel in huge numbers, people would go into matches in huge numbers, you know, it didn't just start a few years ago, we all think, you know, what's that great line of the 60s, they say, every generation thinks it invented sex, yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. true, and it's a bit like that with football, every generation thinks it invented football, but they didn't, you know, and they invented certain things that happened in football, but they didn't, you know, that, that shot of the cop where, you know, 
that John Robertson, they threw a tennis ball at him and he volleyed it and flicked it back into the net. <laughs> and, the, and the cops started cheering. I mean, that's just, you just go, that's gold when you hear stories like that, you know. And the fact that, you know, the cop was so intimidated and, you know, it was such a difficult place to go. Like it is now. I mean, when they beat Chelsea recently in the Champions League Liverpool, all Mourinho went on about was, it's so difficult to win at Liverpool. It's so difficult to win at Liverpool. And that's exactly what Clough was like. And players were going, it's so hard to go to Liverpool. That's been going on for decades. Like I said, mm. since Shankly went there, you know. So I just wanted to show those things where you just go, I can't believe that. And the, the, the best thing about that, one of the other players said to me that in another game he was going... Uh, Clef would come in and what he would do is he would he would often only say, only ever tell you two or three things he was a very clever man in the sense that he would never try to pontificate and go on too much at half time he would tell you two or three key things he would do in so you could remember them mm. so it was often a very calm one but so we're in this one game we're playing he's coming and he's and for the first time he's he's, he's a bit irate and he's going um you know, we've, this is all about us together. You know, we're a team, and I'm a socialist because he was a big sort of believer in socialism and all that. Yeah. You know, even though he, he drove a Merc, he was he was a classic champagne socialist, and I loved him for it. I just going on, you know, we're all in this together. There's no superstars in my teams, and you know, we're all brilliant and blah blah blah. And then somebody points out a bit like you were saying that John Robertson's having a fag, and he goes. He can do whatever he wants. He's a genius. But listen, the rest of you, we're a team and we go out there and we do this together. <laughs> <laughs> so in the same breath, he's saying, you know, there's no superstars on my side, but he can do whatever he wants because he's a genius. And you just think to yourself, only he could get away with that, really. You're saying that, being so contradictory, but in a beautifully charming way as well. And when you, I mean, I'm just talking about that idea of thinking you invent the sport. When you listen to the players talk about how they were asked to play, yeah, isn't, isn't what they're talking about the sort of high-line pressing football that everyone seems to think is the bee's knees right now. And they're talking about how it's about energy, keeping you know keeping the other team on its heels. And then when you watch the footage of actually how they played football, I mean, he's right. John Robertson, he's, he's, he's got real craft, hasn't he, in his boots? He... Oh, I mean, he's an amazing footballer. I mean, you don't, you don't win two Champions League and you know, provide the assisted one final and the goal in the other by not being one of the best players in the world. And like I said, the fact that he was sort of just hanging around, really, on, he was on the um, transfer list. He was going to Partick Thistle as Cleft arrived. I mean, the, like I said, those tiny nuances, as I said earlier, in history where everything could be so different. And he was on his way. He was gone. And he, he didn't get on with Alan Brown, the manager at the time. Cleft comes in. And Clef notices one day him keeping the ball up with his left foot because he's right-footed, John Robinson. Mm, I know he's taking penalties with two. Yeah, that's right. So he was, so he was able to sort of, he was kind of like ambidextrous, really. In a, I don't know what the term would be in a foot sense. And uh, yeah, ambidextrous. <laughs> I, think with with, I think kick with both feet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He kicked with both feet. <laughs> Clef noticed this, so Clef said, "Listen, I wanted to, I wanted to play wide on the left." And then what I need you to do is, if they what, they, what defenders do, and they're very technical in football terms here, but, you know, they would try and bring you, always show you the outside. You're taught to show the outside as a defender because it's much more difficult to get a ball in when you push further to the corner. That's the idea. But they would try to do that with John Robertson. Because he was so good at his left foot, he would always deliver a pinpoint cross. So what would happen was defenders would go, after about 20 minutes, half an hour, they'd have instructions to the bench going, bring him inside because it's not working, showing him the outside, which is the classic thing to do. Mm. But of course, if he brought him inside, he was right-footed. So he would smash balls in with his right foot. So he was unplayable for a while. And then what happened, after about six months a year, everybody went, well, obviously the whole thing revolves on John Robertson. So they would put two men on him. But yeah. of course, what happened then was, you'd have all the space created by putting two men on somebody. So there'd be an ocean of space there for Tony Woodcock and Gary Burners to run into, because he's taking two players out of the team. And when they sit down and explain this to you, it's so beautifully simple. You go... Wow, I, you know, I, I can't 
can't believe how clever that is. And they, and they, they said to me, what Clough would do then was he always tried to sign left-footed strikers at that time. So Tony Woodcock was left-footed and Gary Burtles was left-footed and Tony Peter Wither was left-footed because they would bring the ball naturally to their left side. It was easier to turn to defenders and play it out to John Robertson. And you go, oh, that's not what he did. They go, yeah. So everything would channel through, would be turned to the left, given to John Robertson, and that's the way the ball would come in. And that caused that team to win everything. A very simple thing of going, I'll just play everything to the left. The, the, simplicity, the genius and the simplicity, as you can imagine, I've, I've spent hours thinking about him watching games, and me and oh, the editor yeah, yeah, yeah. talk about it, is absolutely gorgeous. Because when you, when, the, when you see the goal that wins the European Cup, it kind of ends the film, really. The, the moment of the film, the kind of like money shot, is that goal by Trevor Francis. One of the most famous goals in European history, where he headers the ball in from an acute angle and tumbles over the uh, shot put in net or whatever it is in the yeah, Olympic yeah, Stadium yeah, in Munich. Iconic moment. But when you break the goal down, which I've done, when John Robson gets the ball on the left and he's on his bike, when he drops the shoulder with the two Malmo defenders and the ball's just about to come across, when I've watched it back, and I can watch from different angles, four Nottingham Forest players are on their bikes and they're motoring. Ian Bowyer, the post, Tony Woodcock, just inside his shoulder, Gary Bertles, who just misses it, as he says, he leans back, and Trevor Francis. They all know in that split second where the ball's coming. It's, as, as a John Robson, it's, oh, it's coming in because he's going to beat the defenders. So they're on their bikes and motoring. Clough doesn't have to tell them. Nobody's to tell them. It's second nature at that point. They know what he's going to do because they know each other so well. And that's the secret of willing teams. They know each other so well. And the reason why they knew each other so well, and it's all there in the film, is because they socialised together. They went out together. They were best mates. And that was all engineered by Clough. Clough, as he said, would let us do what we want on a weekend. You know, after the match, he went, go on a few pints. You know, go on a few, you know, go on, you're, gonna, you're young, you can recover. John Robinson said to me, I could smoke in my 20s and play football. He said, I couldn't do it in my 30s. He said, by the time I was 32, I couldn't do it. He said, I couldn't play football match and have a fag. At 22, I could do it. Gary Burtle said to me, I could drink. He said, and sometimes terrible. I could drink three or four pints. And he said, I would be fresh on, on, when I was 21 to play football. And I sat there and I thought to myself, I used to be like that. I used to be able to go out on a weekend, and I could have a, a mad weekend, and, I, and I'm sure we all say it, and on a Monday, I'd be like fresh as a daisy. Mm. Now, now, if I have a few pints and have a weekend, Monday, I'm, not, well, it's, I'm, I'm Wednesday till I recover. And that's what it is. He kind of didn't worry too much in the sense of fitness. What he did was he went, right, I've got a brilliant bunch of footballers. They're all young. They're all fit. And I believe that's a great story. Find Frank Clark for overtraining. He actually find a player for overtraining. It's so <laughs> It's beautiful, isn't it? So he, he said, look, you're all fit. You're all young, you can all play, and as a lovely eleven Gary Burtles, once you go over the white line, I trust you. Yeah. I trust I trust you're gonna give your best and I trust you. And once somebody tells you that, I mean there's no there's no pressure then, is there? It's, it's almost like you if you love somebody you set them free. He loved them so much that once he said to them, I trust you, and I know you're gonna do your best, and you carry on, then you they're gonna do their best for him. And the results back it up. I kind of ended the film with that line, as you said, that when he says about football belonging to everybody, but just before that he kind of goes you can talk and talk and talk as much as you want about football, but you have to produce the results. You have to produce the results. And he's kind of almost self-referencing the start of the film, of him being quite cocky and saying to Don Reddy, mm. I want to do it better than you. But there's no point talking about it. Brian, you've got to do it, pal. You know what I mean? And he's almost talking about himself, I think, there, and going, I was a cocky young sod, and I talk, you can talk and talk, but I have done it now. I have done it. You know what I mean? And he's sort of like self-referencing what he did. No, no, totally. And, 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 and you know, that's what I want people to do after the film. Then you've really got to start getting 10, 15 years later. And again, as I said, I've got very close to the family and they've been brilliant. You've really got a man that couldn't cope with his own genius by the end and had to turn to drink because the pressure just became too much of him being this kind of 
looming giant over not just you know a town or a city but a whole country really where you know he should have been the England manager that never was and all that mm. and, and couldn't quite cope with it in the end Can I, I mean listening to the interviews am I right in thinking that every now and again when one of the players obviously says something that you're not expecting we're getting like an echo of you laughing yeah, on, yeah. that is genius John. seriously because that was about half a dozen times, and it's like because it's almost like you're watching it with us. I know. It's a bit like we're trying to keep a straight face, and you're told you all your life, and you never ever laugh, never react. But Kenny Burns going, you yeah. know, Frank's about I don't know forty eight or something at the time. We got to laugh at that because Frank Clark was what thirty three, yeah. and he was considered really old because yeah. he was thirty three. And then like you know, Kenny Burns is going. Frank Clark, you know, he's a 47 or something at the time. He's just thinking, that's genius. <laughs> I had to laugh, you know. And I'm going, so when I did it, obviously the, the, the obvious thing to do was to take your laughter out. But Henry Normal, the producer, went, no, the laughter stays in. Oh, no, totally, yeah, no, I think yeah, it was a wise move. Yeah, he just went, no, that stays in, because that's brilliant, because that's him watching it with us mm. and us knowing. And, and also what he said it does is he said it gives the space when people laugh, it gives a space for them to laugh, and then you don't miss the next bit that they say, if you know what I mean. So he said, mm. it actually, it makes it so that you're laughing with Johnny. There's the space, then Johnny speaks, and then they're saying, so we left it in there, and uh, yeah, I'm really glad you picked up on that. But I couldn't help myself, and I shouldn't have been doing it. If you, if you like football, certainly, like you said, and you're of a certain generation, I mean, it's pretty much guaranteed you're going to love it. So it's had amazing reviews amongst the football press. I mean, pretty mm. much universal, five-star, best number of footballs. One of the festivals of football ever made, and which is really flattering. And I think if you'd have, have a younger generation, you will really enjoy it because there's just so much in there that where you go, God, was that what it was like? And the terraces, I mean, just the terraces again. Totally, people yeah, of yeah, the younger yeah. just go, I can't believe we just the cop used to sway. You know, they just go, wow, it's well, like a, a, simple stuff like you, you, one of your footage. It says, and and they're going to a fifty thousand crowd at White Hart Lane. Yeah, like, you know, it's like what thirty five thousand now. You sort of. This, these are worlds away, aren't they, in some senses, but it's still very much recent history. Oh, and when he walks past the shelf, doesn't he? And Brian Moore is completely ignoring the fact that he's getting a proper rollicking from the, from the Spurs fans <laughs> to the point of cleft turns and stares them down, and they're chanting him. And Brian, Brian Moore is going, yes, he's getting a fantastic reaction there from the Spurs fans. And you're going, are you watching the same game as that slot? Are you mental? Do you know what I mean? It's beautiful. Because they're obviously just ignoring the fact that, you know, it's a real feral atmosphere. And Brian Clough has walked past the stand, and his son is there. He's the young boy in it, who's Simon. It was a lovely lad. Simon, you can see, just sort of scoots to the um, to the dugout. And it's a brilliant story, Simon said. If you watch it, obviously Simon and Peter scurry to the dugout mm. and Cluffy stops and stares him down. And in the stairs just before, Cluffy has turned to the both and gone, listen, they can be a bit, you know, they can be a bit dodgy here in Tottenham. It's a, you know, it can be a bit feral. So we get into that dugout as soon as we can, okay? And they both <laughs> go, all right. And what does Cluff do? The complete opposite. He stops and stares him down. <laughs> and they're both looking down at him going, you just told us to dive in here as soon as you can, but you can't help yourself turn around as if to say, who are you to boo me? <laughs> Who are you to boo me? I'm Brian Cleft. You know what I mean? It's just genius. So there's a bit of a story behind that, you know, where, again, you know, it's just him where you can just go, nah, I'm going to change my mind on this one, actually. I'm not being, I'm not being rollicked by a bunch of uh, hooligans in, in a terrorist. It's not going to happen. I'm going to look back at you to say, who are you to boo me? <laughs> just, indeed, just indeed. Brian Cleft. Brian Cleft. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, well, Johnny, look, um, I want to talk about this all day, but I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, sure thing, yeah. got, I'm sure I haven't got a podcast audience that'll let me. Um, so I just let, only mean for me to say, 
this is a fantastic documentary. I'd agree with what echo what you've already been receiving so far, and certainly the the review of I've drafted is along oh, those lines. It thank is a you very much. Documentary. Thank you. It's a fantastic document about football of a, t- a recent time in history, which I think, like you say, I think for for people of a certain vintage, they'll 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 feel a warm glow. For people who don't who are too young to remember it, they'll be astounded. <laughs> I know they will. <laughs> and, and and I think, to be honest with you, and I think there's a lot of football professionals who are coaching and managing the game could well do with watching it and get back to the core of what it is to manage football, as opposed to all the mathematics and stats. Which Absolutely. you know, I've never known a stat score a goal yet. You know, it's no. kind of you know when you, you see it all the time in the newspapers and you kind of go, I watch football, and that player isn't the best midfielder. I don't care what the stats say. And I yeah. think I think that, you know, uh, I think it was what the, sort of Clough says about, you know, what one of the players says, which is um, about, he knew what I was good at, so what I was bad at didn't matter. Yeah. Whereas, whereas we seem to be making these generic footballers these days that could do everything, yeah. but, but not and do I, anything well. That's it. It's kind of like a sort of, a sort of amorphous athletic mass, yeah. really. Whereas yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the impatient imbi- left winger who could just beat a man. John yeah. Robinson says another great thing. You're right. He says to me, I just think if you can beat a man with a football, it creates space. All line, the reason why Lionel Messi is so good and so effective is he can beat a man. I thought what a beautifully simple thing again he said there. Well, look, before you go, remind people how they can see the film. So basically, can you can go and watch the film in cinemas on... October the 13th, Tuesday, October the 13th, you go in IBelieveInMiraclesFilm.com, type in the location. Um, if you don't enjoy this film, I promise I'll come round, me and Stuart, and we'll repaint the kitchen. It's that good. <laughs> and, um, and then it'll be out on DVD in November, ready for Christmas, and it's called I Believe in Miracles, and it's the remarkable story of Brian Clapp's European Cup winning side. Thank you very much, Johnny. You're very welcome. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina. 